Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to the 69th Psalm. Psalm 69. And while you're doing that, and because it's uh, the first Sunday of the year, and the new year, that change of the calendar gives all of us a chance to be a little bit introspective and look at our lives and make changes. Some of us are making health changes. Some of us are making scheduling changes. I want to offer you an opportunity that has great value. And I don't mean it just from a programming standpoint. I mean value to your walk in Christ. Uh, We encourage you to begin to reshape your Wednesday nights to be here for programming. We have great opportunities for the entire family. Some of you are wanting to draw closer become more serious in your walk of faith, and we've provided some opportunities for you from 6.30 to 8 o'clock on Wednesdays for all ages of our church. Let me tell you, for you adults, some opportunities I I want to to put in front of your mind to think about. If you're a brand new believer or you've been a Christian for a while, but you just got a little bit of an emptiness to you and you're trying to figure out what do you do next to, to live this out, we have a class called The Walk. And you can sign up for it. And in fact, all of these classes and information are available out in the foyer in the tables when you walk out of here to your left. And you can sign up. It doesn't mean you're committed forever, but it's letting us know how large of a room to prepare. But the walk is a class that helps you understand what are the things you do every day to walk with Christ? What has the Bible taught us and what do you have available to you to inspire your walk with him? Uh, the next class is a class that's going to be taught called What's in the New Testament? And it's going to survey every book in the New Testament. So when you read it, you understand why it's there, what it's trying to do, and what benefit it has to you in your walk of faith. Uh, We're going to be studying the book of Mark, and I'll explain why in a little bit, but an in-depth look at the gospel of Mark, and that's a pure Bible study, and you can sign up to be a part of that. We have a class called, uh, for women's Bible study, When Godly People Do Ungodly Things. It's a video series that meets in small groups. You sign up for that, you'll be assigned a group, and you can go through that study. We have several other classes that are available, but really want to encourage you that not only on Sunday mornings during this hour do we have Bible classes, and on Tuesday we have groups that meet. You can look up what those are out there as well. But really on Wednesday night for your entire family, an opportunity for you to carve out a moment in the midst of all of it to be a part. Now, I want to be honest, and I, always, I want to tell you the why I say what I say so you understand my heart. It's not about how many people come out here on Wednesday nights. It's really about how many people want to grow deeper and become stronger in their faith and learn to live a better Christian walk. We want to enable you to do that. The church can't be your spiritual walk for you, but they can walk with you, and that's what we're trying to do. So we hope if Wednesday nights is available to you, you'll make that a priority. Schedule whatever you need to and come out here. All the information you need to know uh, is out at the tables, and Scott Ensminger, who's in charge of our adult programming, will be happy to answer any of those questions. If not, he'll make an answer up. That's what we do, all right? So we really encourage you on Wednesday nights to make that a priority. Uh, okay, Psalm 69. We'll be there in a minute, but I want to give you kind of a prelude to it, a little bit of a lead-in, first message of a new year, a new curriculum on Sunday mornings of what we're going to be studying. Uh, in John 15, Jesus is discussing with his disciples the burden that he bore the responsibility placed on him. In John 15, 25, it says, This is to fulfill what the scripture said about me when it said, They have hated me without cause. When Jesus said that they've hated me without cause, he's quoting the 69th Psalm. It's a Psalm that King David wrote. It's a Psalm when David was going under. 
when he was having a bad time, when the pressure of being a king dedicated to God was wearing him out. And he wrote this eloquent, beautiful psalm. You heard part of it read this morning as we looked at verses of that and the heartbeat of it. But David's not only writing a psalm that made sense to his day, little did he know the Holy Spirit was using that song to relate to the days of Jesus. And when Jesus quoted it, he was actually telling his audience, you've heard this before, and if you look where I got this line, you'll understand it's talking about me. So let's read it. We're going to read the first 21 verses, and then we're going to read verses 30 through 36. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, and the floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause and those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord, the Lord Almighty. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. For I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor. In your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me for the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Verse 30. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. The poor will see and be glad. You will seek God and may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the sea and all that moves in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. It's a powerful psalm. It's a psalm of reality and a psalm of hope. It's a psalm where David, King David cries out. He says, I am going under. I'm not going to make it. And God, I have begged you, and you are silent. And I don't need your silence. I need your presence. And then at the end, verses 30 through 36, David comes back and he says, but I know you're there. I cry out to you because I know you're real. And I know you're there. And I know that you are going to be with me. And may we live forever together as you've promised, but it's all on you. It's a song of hope, and it's a song of despair. And it's kind of a bummer, isn't it? I mean, of all the psalms to open with the new year, why did I do this? I mean, I'm going to drag you right back into the mud. But then I saw the weather outside, and God affirmed that I was supposed to talk about despair, right? Because this is not how the year is supposed to begin, gray and those white things in the air. I, didn't, I don't know. The song references two kings, but David doesn't know it. David thinks he's referencing his own journey with God, but he's actually referencing the journey of the greater king. And Jesus tells us that when he uses and he quotes this psalm a song that he would have sung in his religious training. 
and in his worship in the temple. So I, I want to point out that as David cries out from the human condition, it's, it's actually projecting on Jesus in the spiritual condition. So let's look at what Psalm 69 tells us about our king who will come and what he does. First of all, Jesus came to be a servant. This is why David quotes the 69th Psalm, because David says, as a servant of God, I'm struggling with this. And Jesus, as a servant of God, would struggle even in a greater degree than this. Once again, verses 1 and 2. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, and the flood engulfs me. We'll pause there for a moment. If you understand the imagery of the sea in the Old Testament, you'll understand that it was dark, it was murky, it was deep, it was chaotic. No man controls the sea. No man could stop the sea from being deep or being violent or what lurked beneath the surface. The imagery of the sea in the Old Testament is a beautiful imagery. And David uses it to cry out. He says, I am sinking. I am going under. My feet are stuck in the soft bottom of the sea and I am sinking deeper and deeper and I don't know what to do and you must save me before the flood wipes me out. Verse 17. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly for I am in trouble. The reason I'm opening 2015 with this dark psalm is not to create a false sense of urgency. But for many of us, we have resolved we're going to sleep more, better sleep, rest well. We're going to exercise some. If most of us said, I'm going to exercise more, that would be easy. Today would accomplish that, right? I'm going to eat better. I'm going to read more. I'm going to watch less entertainment. I'm going to focus on more education. There's a lot of decisions we make. But I think the greatest resolution for many of us today, if I can be so direct, is to simply pray the 17th verse. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. I think the resolution for many of us is to simply admit, I'm going under. This, this everyday routine of working and family and working and family and working and family and saving and spending and making and spending and saving, it wears us out. And there's no satisfaction. We, the best resolution is to cry out to God, I'm in trouble, I'm sinking. Because only when we call out to him while we're sinking can he save us. In fact, the word sinking is what David uses and Jesus came to sink. To be a servant is to lower yourself. It is to trade what you have and give it to someone who doesn't have. It's the concept of sinking. And when David says, my feet are in the mud and I'm going under, Jesus was our answer to that. He came to sink. Listen to Philippians 2, 5-8. This is a very common verse. I actually did a research. In the last two years, this, these verses right here have appeared in 38 sermons. Okay, now you factor that out. A hundred messages in the last two years and 38 times we allude to this. If you're going to preach about Jesus, you have to bring it all out. Your attitude as believers should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not grasp equality with God, or excuse me, did, being in very nature did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I want to pause there. The word grasp is a Greek word. If I can translate it into our culture, have, did you see any children receive a gift at Christmas this year and when the parents tried to take it from them to put the batteries in or to take it out of its package, you heard these words, mine. Anybody experience that this Christmas? Let me start over. Did any of you do that to anybody else this Christmas? You got your favorite pair of socks and your kids? Let me see those. No, mine. The word grasp has the connotation of holding on to that which is mine. 
And it said that Jesus, in the, in the beauty and joy of heaven, did not consider what was rightfully his, something that he had to hold on to and say mine. Continuing. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He went from heaven to earth. He gave up the best parts of being God to become the worst parts of being man. He did that because he chose to. He did that because he wanted to. The incarnation was an act of violence. It stripped him of his joy. It stripped him of his glory. It stripped him of his power. It stripped him of his majesty. All of that so he could walk on earth. It was a violent thing he did. We have these beautiful little nativities that we've packed up, put back in bubble wrap. Some of us have, and they're back where they belong, in the attic. Beautiful little figurines of a clean, precious little baby. It was a violent act that took him from heaven to earth. That God became a cell, which became an embryo, which became a baby. Compared to what he was, what he became was an act of violence. You see, God became the weakest form. And then he went from the cradle to the cross. And this is where we begin next week. This message leads us into a series we're going to begin next Sunday called Relentless Pursuit. And I'm going to encourage you, I know for a preacher say, we really want you to come back next week. We want you to come back for eternity is what we want. Not to here, but to Christ. But next week we're going to begin a 13-week series through the Gospel of Mark. The most urgent story of Jesus told. The, the rapidity by which Mark tells us the events of Jesus' life. Because Mark wants us to understand, Jesus had a relentless pursuit. It was from cradle to cross. That's why he came, to serve us by death. And that's why on Wednesday nights, if you're looking for a Bible study to go deeper into a book that few of us really study, the Gospel of Mark, I encourage you to come be a part of that, where verse by verse we can process together what God is doing through the writing of Mark. You see, Jesus ascended. He gave up his power. He gave up his rule. He submitted himself. He sunk into this world from heaven so that he could lift us up. And then he came to be hated. Verse 4. Not only did he come to serve us, but he came to be despised, which had to be hard for the one who created. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, and those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. The injustice of it. The one who came in love was hated. The one who came accepting all was rejected. The one who came preaching truth was lied about. Can you see that Jesus knew when he quoted the 69th Psalm that they will hate me without cause, that he realized when God asked him to come, it would cost him love. He had an intimate relationship in the always present love of the Father, and that would be rejected to the point that on the cross he would cry out and say, why have you forsaken me? See, the truth is, the reason Jesus was hated is because he was holy. Let me explain it this way. He came in light, and light exposes things. Light exposes realities, not shadows. Light in the proper place identifies what is really there. And we don't like the light. It's a simple illustration, but it's true. When light shows up, that which is hidden in the darkness is no longer hidden. That's why they hated Jesus. You see, when we live out the light of Christ, it is going to show the acts of dishonesty at our work, and we're not going to be loved for that. It's going to show the the impropriety in our home life, the inconsistencies, and we're not going to like that. It's going to open up our souls and show us that there are areas of resentment and anger and bitterness and attitude that we don't need 
And the light's going to show us that. Now, Jesus did not come to bring the light to show us how messed up we were. He came to make us aware of how messed up we were so he could fix it. When Christianity becomes something that makes people feel bad, we have misused its hope. But when Christianity shines a light not only on what is wrong, but how to become right with God, then it is the hope of the world. And so Jesus came knowing that he would be hated for doing what we needed him to do. Mark 13, 13. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Notice that. They will hate you because of me, but if you stand firm with me, it'll be worth it. You see, he came to do amazing things. He came to be a servant. He came to be hated. And then he came to be exchanged. And this is a powerful truth. It's found in verse 9. He says, For the zeal of your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. David said, God, I'm trying to be your king. I'm trying to do what you're asking me to do, and I'm getting the tar kicked out of me over this. I did nothing wrong. The injustice of it. And Jesus would quote not only the line about being hated, but many of you will recognize he quoted, For the zeal of your house consumes me. Do you remember where he quoted that? When he was done tipping over tables. Do you remember when he walked in the temple and the temple, instead of being a place where all could draw close to God, it had become a segregated place where only the Jews could do so and even they were being taken advantage of and Jesus had enough and he turned over the tables and they quoted the 69th Psalm about him. The zeal for the holiness of God consumes him. Verse 17, David is so perplexed when he writes these words. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly for I am in trouble. And Jesus would be able to cry that out in the garden and on the cross. It is overwhelming what sin did to to David and what sin did to Jesus. And David said, this isn't fair. This isn't right. The house I grew up in, South Bend, Indiana, I have uh, two older brothers and a younger brother. There's four of us boys. And my parents bought, when I was in fifth grade, we moved to this little ranch-style house, this little tiny ranch-style house. And my dad had to convert the basement for living space. We didn't have a family room, so the basement was our family room. And we basically lived down our basement. There was one bedroom. The oldest child at home always got the cave. And I remember being the third, waiting for my two older brothers to get on with their lives so I could live down the basement. And our whole family lived down the basement. But we were pigs. I'm not going to be honest. My mom did all the work, and we were typical boys, and our stuff was laying all over. Now, my dad, who didn't help very much, would come home occasionally from work. My dad worked for United Airlines, and he worked different shifts as a supervisor. Sometimes he'd work late until 2 in the morning, and sometimes he'd get up at 4 in the morning and go to work. So when you saw dad at home, it was wonderful and surprising. Not all those surprises were pleasant. As I've explained to those of you that have been with me for the last six years in this journey together, my dad, for some reason, wore every key on a loop on his belt. You always knew my dad was coming because it sounded like a real heavy reindeer coming quickly. (laughs) And down our basement, there was only one escape path, and that was the path he came down. And I remember that dad would come downstairs, and he'd just come home from work, and he would go down into the basement, into the laundry room, and he'd take off his work clothes, and he'd put on his fun clothes, and he'd go about his day. But he came down many times, and he would look around, and he would see the cereal bowls, and the popcorn bowls, and the chip bags, and the pop containers, and he'd see all that around the basement. My dad would just give an edict, boys, take all your stuff upstairs and do the dishes. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of a demand. No, we had a rotation. We knew he was going to do this periodically, and we kept records of who did dishes last. 
Most of you with siblings know exactly what I'm talking about. Dad would come down, do the dishes. We'd look at Scott. <laughs> Your turn. And he'd have to go up and do the dishes. But that was okay. I could live with that. That just made sense in my world. We made all this mess. He wants the basement tidy. Mom's probably told him to turn loose on us, so he did. And we would take care of it. But the days I hated were the days my dad would come downstairs after school. And I was eating a big bowl of cereal before practice. And I'd be watching a Cub game because they were always on WGN in the afternoon. And I'd be sitting down there in the perfect place for my life in that moment. And my father would come home from work, and he'd say to me, Mark, take all the dishes upstairs and do them. And that was wrong. (laughs) If Dale had come downstairs and said, Mark, take your dishes upstairs and do them, I would not argue. But when he said, take the dishes, those weren't all my dishes. Anybody else relating with me on this? I'm not doing Scott's cereal bowl. He's a pig. He left it there a week ago, Dad. That's not my bowl. My dad would look at me. Take them upstairs and do them. That was unjust. It was wrong. In fact, for four years, he didn't get a Father's Day present. No, I'm just teasing. But it was wrong. He was flawed. Now, that illustration, as corny as it is, but real, is what the doctrine of substitution says. God said to Jesus... Go down and clean up the mess Mark's made of my house. And Jesus said, okay. But he should have said, it's not my garbage. It's not my sin. It's not my filth. I didn't wreck the place, God. Why should I have to go down and clean up the mess he made on purpose? He's lazy. He's a slob. He didn't care about anybody but himself. And said, Jesus, instead of going to justice, Jesus went to mercy and he said, I'll go. And that's the doctrine of the exchange. That the most holy God became an infant so he could clean up our mess. And David says, I'm sinking, I'm sinking, I'm sinking. And Jesus said, I came to sink. I'm going to take you out of the mess and put my feet in it. That's exactly what he did. We struggle with that, don't don't we? Because that's not right. He shouldn't have had to have done that. I'm glad he did. But I have to ask you this question. If Jesus said, I will exchange my place in heaven for your place in the depth of your worst nightmares, would you accept it? Because I will. And if you call yourself a Christian, what you've done is you've said to Jesus, place your feet where mine are stuck so that I can walk free again. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, the Old Testament prophet projects what Jesus would accomplish. He talks about the suffering servant, the one who served and was hated and exchanged himself for us. I'd like to read from chapter 53 from the message translation, which isn't a word-for-word translation, but it's a theme translation. It's a concept. I love what Eugene Peterson does here. Verse 2, the servant grew up before God a scrawny seedling, a scrubby patch in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. 
We're all like sheep who have wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's the doctrine of substitution. When David said, Father, why have you hidden your face from your servant? It echoes the words of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The exchange took place. What David felt temporarily, Jesus felt. He felt deeply. Verse 20, scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy and there was none, for comforters, but I found none. David said, no one is supporting me and I'm trying to do the right thing. And Jesus on the cross looked out and there was no one. Peter, with all of his great claim that he would be faithful, was gone. All the disciples were scattered for fear. And in the garden he was arrested and taken alone. Nobody there to support. He put his feet in the mud I was sinking in so that I could walk free. And then in Luke chapter 12, verse 37 and 38, there's this wonderful passage that's just come to life for me in the last year. I don't know why I didn't see this before. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. In Luke 12, verse 37, Jesus says, it will be good for those servants whose master find them watching when he comes. That verse always strikes in me panic. What if Jesus came now? Would I be readier? Now would I be readier? Now would I be? I can do that all day. My worst moments. I'll be selfish and mean to my family and not thoughtful and lazy. I'll think, if he came now, it's not, listen to what he says. It will be good for those servants whose masters find them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. I have read that and never seen it. Did you catch what Jesus is going to do? I thought when Jesus came back, we're all going to take a knee and he's going to go by and go, duck, duck, goose. And the geese die. But in not, he said, he's going to come back. And for those of us that are waiting for him and living our lives to his glory, who are not grasping onto the things of the world, but holding on to the things of holiness, that he will, notice this, he will wash our feet. We will recline and he will serve. His nature is so beautifully demonstrated there. Verse 38, it will be good for those servants whose masters find them ready even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. Are you in trouble? Are you sinking? Jesus says, I'll take your place. Will you wait on me? What, what if I don't come? What if I don't answer? What if I don't do what you think I need to do? Will you wait even to the second or third watch of the night into the darkness of the evening when you're all alone and it's 2.30 a.m. and you can't sleep and your heart's broken and your shame and your guilt and your pain and you're crying out to God going, where are you? Jesus said, blessed are those who continue to wait and watch even until the darkest moments of the night because our God is alive and in Jesus Christ, he came to trade you places so you can live. That's the God we worship. That's the God we serve. That's the God we wait on. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.